we went way over an hour again. Yeah, we did. We haven't even done our intro yet. No, we haven't. Oh God, no. All right. I mean, um, I blame I blame Tamise because she said we're the best podcast ever. So yeah, it makes you yes. want to keep going for sure. It does. Welcome to episode 345 of The Fascinating Podcast, a podcast about fascinating people and the events at the heart of our cultural conversations. I'm Kathy Kong. I'm Matt Michelotis. And I'm J.R. Foresteros. Clay Morgan is once again not with us. We hope he'll be back soon. We miss him. Uh, on this week's show, we're talking with author Tamise Spencer-Helms about her new book, Faith Unleavened, The Wilderness Between Trayvon Martin and George Floyd. But first... Kathy, mm. who's your favorite? Who's your favorite character that exists in the public domain? Um, this one didn't come to mind, but just for fun, I'm going to say Piglet. Okay, Matt. Hmm, Sherlock Holmes, maybe. Oh, nice. That's Ooh. a great one. Um, yeah. Uh, well, mm. you may or may not know that Winnie the Pooh did go into the public domain last year. Uh, uh-huh. which is what, like a hundred years, isn't it? Something like that. Till the, In the, the United States, expires? it's 75 years, unless you get an extension, I think. Okay. Oh. Uh, and so like the day that Winnie the Pooh, cause it always happens on January 1st, right? It's like, here's all the new things. Here, that here just... are all the new things that are now public domain, which basically means you can do whatever you want with them without infringing. You can exploit right? them. Or if you're this weird director, you could write a slasher movie <laughs> That is called Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. And oh, no. so Blood and a, Honey. A trailer dropped for it on January 1st. People were like, this cannot be real. And they were like, oh, we assure you it's real. And so <laughs> it is getting like a Fathom Events one night release in theaters tonight as we're wow. recording. And I'm, you know, I'm going. What's the plot? I don't know. I actually, I actually chose not to watch a trailer because I've read Winnie the Pooh. And I've watched Winnie <laughs> You're like, Pooh. I think I'll be able to follow it. <laughs> He's a bear. He likes honey. Maybe also yeah, blood. Among other I, things. I do think that Piglet and he are like partners in crime in this killing. <gasps> um, that doesn't make any sense because a bear would absolutely eat a piglet if it's going to go around murdering people. Well, but they were know, we'll friends. So in their actual realm, right there, they were all friends, all these little animals. So that also doesn't make any sense. But well, blood maybe, and is honey. Is Pooh actually killing people or are people killing Pooh? Do we even know that I, much? Don't, we don't know anything, Matt. I'm telling you. I will, I will of course, report back. Okay. Is there um, blood and honey in the film? Uh, that's what the title promises. <laughs> It'd be funny if at the end it wasn't a horror film at all. Like that was just to get everyone in the theater. It was a really sweet show. little show about okay. Winnie the Pooh. Like a, a a young boy who has this imaginary world full of uh, adorable animals. Uh, you know, I don't think that the copyright is actually up for all of the Winnie the Pooh characters because some of them appeared later. Oh, and certain things about Winnie the Pooh that are from Disney versus the original book are not in the public domain. Okay, so it should be interesting to see which things are actually. Out there. You know, which ones you go, you go like, that's not how the cartoon was. No, well, no, it's based on the book. 
a character <laughs> from the book. Okay. I don't remember Winnie the Pooh being so stabby. Well, yeah, you know, Disney. Well, it's like, based so, on the book. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Disney always. Yeah. <laughs> they take out all of the stabbing, you know. That's right. Pretty typical. It's a family organization. <laughs> right, right. Anyway, I uh I'm I'm very fascinated by this idea now of things going into the public domain and then because we have such a nostalgia driven culture right now, people who are like anticipating this and then creating projects that are intentionally subverting those things. I just think it's it's really uh it's really interesting. Um and I couldn't help but think about the he gets us commercials, which I know we're gonna be talking about later, with the idea of like uh, a public domain Christ, right? Like I mean Jesus mm-hmm. is in the public domain. Correct. For sure. Yeah. That's why it's called incarnation, Matt. Hey. <laughs> um All right, with that. (laughs) Tell us a little bit more about Tamise, Kathy. Well, she's a first-time author, so I think it's always exciting to bring somebody in who is new to the writing world, and I think we should just jump right in. Well, we want to welcome to the fascinating podcast, Tamise Spencer-Helms. She has written a fabulous book, Faith Unleavened, The Wilderness Beyond Trayvon Martin and George Floyd. Welcome to the fascinating podcast, Tamise. Hello, hello. what's good? (laughs) So we like to ask our first-time guests, what fascinates you generally, currently, throughout your life? Yeah, wordplay. I'm going to go with wordplay. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I'm fascinated by what people can do with words. And so my favorite wordsmiths are Jesus, James Baldwin, and (laughs) Jay-Z. Nice. Incredible (laughs) at wordplay. And I love it. So I think that that's what fascinates me. If I can get lost in words, I'm trying to Mm. stay with it. And they can speak on levels. That's really fascinating to me. So, yeah. (laughs) Speak on levels, you mean... What does that mean? Like saying one thing and meaning multiple things or? Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is I've been reading a lot of like uh, Neil Douglas Klotz lately about how there's like in Aramaic, there are like four levels of meaning within Mm -hmm. each phrase and even the sound and the vibration of the phrases has meaning. So it's just, I've just been fascinated by that and thinking about that in terms of like parabolic stuff. And yeah, I love language and wordsmithing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's really ah, interesting. That is fascinating. Yeah. Oh. yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I was going to say, yeah, speaking, speaking of the wordplay, even in your title, like the way you frame out your book, right? You say it's from Trayvon Martin to George Floyd. And um, you use those two uh, murders as a framework for your own uh, experience of decolonization. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how how this book took shape. Like, was that always the framework? Was that something you arrived at on the other side of the side and you wanted to kind of do memoir stuff? Like where did that, where did that all come together for you? Uh, so it's very interesting because it was really after George Floyd passed away where I realized that I was a different person and that the way that murder hit me was completely different than the way that Trayvon hit me. Um, oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, and where I was, how I handled it, who I talked to, um, what I did in light of it, it was all different. And so that kind of started got, started me thinking like something has happened here because I um, I was devastated, but in a different way. 
um, than I was with Trayvon. And, um, and so really it feels like my writing of that memoir is really trying to make sense of that process between the two murders um, and to talk about how, you know, I actually did emerge freer um, from this wilderness between these two mur uh, murders. And I was different as a result of all that happened in between 2012 and 2020. Um, and so I think for me, wilderness was a really amazing um, phraseology because I like words, but also <laughs> because like you emerge usually typically, you know, in the biblical motifs, they emerge from wilderness or exile with a revolutionized way of thinking about God, about themselves and doing faith. Um, and so to me, it just made a lot of sense to kind of call that space a wilderness. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. So how would you say you are doing faith now? What does that look like for you now? Yeah. Faith for me now, Kathy, it looks like I I've been telling people this. Uh, I, I would say that right now I am a person who is chasing light. And in doing that, I have not had to stop chasing Jesus. Um, and so I think that's the best way to characterize faith for me. I, I feel like um, it, when I recognize, you know, the character in the book is, you know, why Jesus and all of those things and thinking about how um, I needed to separate from any of that language in order to make sense of everything. Um, and there was precedence, again, this whole wilderness thing, there was precedence for doing that. They emerged from, you know, Babylon with a synagogue system and a Torah system, like they completely changed how they did religion and faith. Um, and so to me, I felt like it's better for me to frame it in, I'm chasing light. And, uh, and I recognize that that's like not the best way to kind of, that could get you in some trouble. <laughs> but to me, that's the best way to encapsulate what faith looks like for me. I'm trying to um, find and chase the light and Jesus um, is still that for me. Uh, I, I'm still compelled by the Jesus that I see in the scriptures, the Palestinian Nazarene, that Jesus for sure. Like that's who I'm chasing. Uh -oh. Uh, Tamise, uh, you know, you, you write early in the book, and we'll get back to this, about how your a lot of your faith ended up being shaped by white evangelical spaces. Oh, yeah. And <clears throat> as a white evangelical myself my whole life, um, I feel like I, I know a little bit about those kind of spaces, too. And even just what you just talked about, about the idea that the whole system what we what will I, I think we just call the the whole system of religion mm -hmm. uh, of the way that humans interact with God shifted multiple times even just in the in the canon of scripture right from the um, the sort of patriarch like sacrifice to your own home idols mm -hmm. to then the tabernacle to then the the one temple you know yes um, and that is so foreign I think to the evangelical mindset where. Uh, God is God, and, you know, we've had this one contiguous religion our whole lives, and, you know, at some point, God, like, like tossed the Bible down to us so that we would, you know, um, like, where did, where along your journey did that insight, um, is, I mean, I, is there a time you can think about where that crystallized? Because, I don't know, that just, that was just so refreshing to hear you talk about it that way. And again, it's, it's something that I've not seen uh, yeah. in evangelical spaces, you know, especially white evangelical spaces. Yeah, I think, um, I love that question. So I became fast, I teach religion. And one of the things I was fascinated by was this idea of monolatry, of 
of this sort of um, that Israel did not start monotheistic, but that they became monotheistic over time. Um, and then I just watched the trajectory from Old to, to New Testament. And it seems that like consistently the faith or the tradition that we're part of as Christians is it's inherently progressive. <laughs> so like, I mean, I think anything that's not growing is dead. Right. Like, and I think that that should be said of the faith as well. Like it's inherently progressive. Um, and so for me to hear like kind of pushback about that, or even, um, you know, the vitriol about that, it doesn't really make sense because we, we should be growing and evolving um, as as society changes around us and as things change around us, we have to ask ourselves, what does faithfulness and light and love and goodness and justice look like in this societal situation? Uh, Cause that's all we have to work with. <laughs> um, and I just, I think that we can kind of use the scriptures as, as the permission, the, the permission, right. That gives us the permission to go, okay, this is what happens, you know, and there are, there is even precedents for changing our minds <laughs> about an interpretation. Mm. I mean, we, that's in the scripture, like it's in Peter's encounter, right? He says, I had an encounter and, and God says we can eat this kind of meat. So he's like challenging the scriptural interpretation based on a personal encounter. Like, just yeah. think about that. Nobody else was there for, <laughs> right? And so the, and Paul does this Peter, really? Exactly. <laughs> 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 so those things started emerging to me when I got back in the scripture. It took me a minute to come back. Um, and, and then I start seeing things. And that's what I mean about like Jesus, like is around every corner. I really like was okay with like not following Jesus. <laughs> like I was cool mm -hmm. with that. And so, but when I started to read like what I call in the book, the naughty list, and I start being exposed to other ways of thinking, um, it's like, wait a minute. I don't have to like, wait, the, the toxin is in the bread. It's, it's like, it's not the bread itself. There's a toxin here. Um, and that's what I need to extract. I don't have to chuck everything else, but I was willing to and unapologetically willing to chuck it all. Um, and I just didn't have to. Turns out didn't have to. The Nazarene was who I <laughs> fell in love with in the scriptures, you know. So like I'm I'm so, thankful for that. Tamise, can you tell us like um you know, I was I was telling Kathy and JR before we started, I was feeling nauseous as I was reading parts of your book. I th I think as you were moving into spaces like JR was saying that I was like, oh, no, that's a hell house. You know, like there's <laughs> there's places you're moving that I'm like, oh, no, I know what's coming. Um, but you tell this story about meeting white Jesus in hell. And you set it up first by just a beautiful story about how you're someone who was reading the Bible, going to church, you're praying, you're interested in God. You seem to have this vibrant relationship, and then your friend invites you. Could could you just tell us that story about meeting white Jesus? I don't want to spoil it for everybody. Yeah, like I, I, I mean, I don't say all of this in the book, but yeah, I had started bringing a Bible to school, and da 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 wow. da, and my friend is like, it seems like you're serious. Like you need, you want to be serious about faith or whatever. So she brings me to this play and it scared the hell out of me. <laughs> and I, became a, I apparently became a Christian that night. Um, and so uh, I think um, I really think it's important to highlight that in the book because there was something that was um, demonized about the way that I was doing. I guess you would call it discipleship. Um, mm -hmm. And 
And I thought that there was something wrong right, with what I had been doing and that these people had the answer. And this is what I needed to do in order to know God, because from the moment in the Audi with my mom, there was a shift that happened. I did. I felt like a warm presence and there was an opening um, that had happened and a hunger to to learn more. Uh, but then white Jesus, it was like that hunger. It it changed a little bit. It was a hunger, but it was like a um more of a conquering it was a colonizing type of hunger mm-hmm. right like i'm gonna conquer this i'm gonna conquer christianity and be the best christian and and in the way that jesus was framed to me white jesus it, it seems like that's possible i mean it, it really it seemed like it would be possible to get to this place of like ultimate discipleship um, which eventually i realized was just becoming a white man but <laughs> at the time it felt like i was growing in christ like you know this is what it means to grow yeah. in christ but i was becoming less and less a black woman which is the exact opposite of you know what it seemed like white jesus wanted me to be well and just to be clear for our audience too this is one of those places where there's some wordplay going on where we have white jesus in the sense of white conception of jesus but you met a literal white jesus also like that was key was in this a- moment <laughs> Oh yeah. And it was the, it was the pastor of the church that I started. I stopped going to my parents' church after that, because this is where serious Christians go now. So, uh, so the guy who played Jesus was the pastor uh, Mm -hmm. of the church. And that was interesting and kind of screwed with my thinking a little bit because there was an um, now looking back, I mean, there was an extra level of a, vulnerability I think I had because I'd had such a traumatic experience that this like white Jesus just saved me from. And now this is the pastor telling me I have to live every Sunday. So it was just like, I think that even though my experience was a little more like acute, I I do think that that's a universal kind of thing that happens is like white male pastors typically in our minds kind of represent Jesus um, or that's the way we act. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's why for me, it was like, oh, you're wanting me to become like this. <laughs> this is where like we're going. <laughs> right. Right. Like the white male pastor. Right. Mm-hmm. With with mm-hmm. less power and authority. But yes, yes. Of, course, of course, of course, of course, we would never take power and authority from God. That's not something we do. No. Um, so. When when you talk about white Jesus, I mean you've been you've been throwing out a lot of phrases. I think a number of our listeners are going to be cued into already. But um, you know when you talk about white Jesus, maybe with with other folks of color who are not as far along in the decolonizing process yeah. as you, what are some of the ways that you, or what are some of like the hallmarks or the the key characteristics of a white specifically a white Jesus? Mm-hmm. Binaries would be one. So I think that you are either saved or lost. You are either us or them. Um, mm-hmm. You are either um, faithful or unfaithful, right? Like there is just mm-hmm. not a lot of nuance, which makes no sense when we're dealing with a Trinitarian God. I mean, like you have to have nuance if you're even going to talk about the Godhead, right? right? So I think that white Jesus right there, even in the binary, right? is like, wait a minute now, like this, you're talking about a person who is God and man at the same time. Mm -hmm. Like clearly the man embodies non-binariness, right? Mm -hmm, And so mm -hmm. I think the ways that white Jesus works, 
Um, I think another way is like those people theology that like the bad experiences of people has to do with, you know, the collective misdeeds they have in society. Um, and that's what I was calling kind of like those people theology. Like, and I remember when, you know, black lives uh, were being continually lost and are still being continually lost. It was like, well, those people are destroying their cities or those people are destroying their neighborhoods. Mm. Right. People need to kind of listen to authority. Um, and so it's like this white Jesus sanctions this kind of like othering, um, which it, really white Jesus is the opposite of Jesus. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Like, I mean, you would say I, he's antichrist. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to step on your wordplay. Hey, 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 the rope fits. Yeah, I do think it is an, a, a form of antichrist. Yeah, I'm sorry, but it's the truth. I mean, oh, you don't have to, to apologize. apologize. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm curious. This is kind of a two-parter because uh, another set of words that is used are used a lot are decolonization and deconstructing. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you've got any thoughts on differentiating the two. Yeah, I mean, just to me, I just think of them in terms of like movement. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So like when I think of deconstruction um, and I don't know, I mean, and I'd love to hear from you on this, Kathy, because I like I'm watching a lot of people enter into this process. It seems like uh, for a lot of my friends who are using um, deconstruction language, there's not a whole lot of places to go after that. So sometimes they deconstruct out of any kind of faith at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, that was a harder, that's harder to think about because of my ancestors, right? Like I, I'm tethered to uh, people who God made a way, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's yes. that. But decolonizing, it, it, it to me speaks more about a process and it's uh, to me, it's similar to unleavening. I mean, I think it's kind of the same thing. It's kind of like there's movement involved. There is a constant checking, a constant awareness um, of when you recognize something, you grab that thing and you chuck that thing. Right. And so mm-hmm. it, it implies there's a humility about it, I think, because of the movement of it, uh, because it, it's not a stagnant type of process. Uh, so those are the differences in terms of like, in, in terms of how I think about the, t- the terms, but I'm not sure. I don't know what the real definitions are. <laughs> yeah, no, I haven't looked them up either, but I'm, I'm curious because I, I hear and read things from folks, especially like in the white evangelical space. And, um, and a lot of that conversation is around deconstructing. And then I look towards, um, the people of color, and particular, particularly women of color, and the language is really around decolonization. And I think there is, you know, for for me and you, and you write about this too, because you came from a black church family, moved into white evangelicalism, and have moved out. Mm-hmm. That. Um, that is where I, um, appreciated the movement and the mm-hmm. reclaiming of an identity that was never lost, but was, um, definitely, uh, squashed as you entered oh, yeah. into those white spaces. Right. And, and so I, I see, um, as somebody who was 
part of a white evangelical space, I think there was some deconstructing that had to happen, but I would label my, my place and my, right. What I continue to do. And it's not something that I will ever be done with. I think is the decolonization, which is not just getting rid of, but also reclaiming what was forced out of Mm -hmm. me. Uh And again, I think that's what I appreciated about your writing and your perspective as a woman who knew you are a Black woman who came from a faith tradition, knowing that your parents were going to be like, um... (laughs) You got there, right? (laughs) um, So I'm curious, like, have have your parents read this book? They have. Well, my mom mom is... um, still processing she's gotten later in the book if you know what i'm talking about so there's a lot of stuff that she didn't know was going on with mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. that she now knows and so my mom is processing it she's just um, the most amazing person um and so she's been calling me and um she's like macy i remember and like all these things so that's been really cool uh the rest of my family is like we don't want a free copy we buy we we don't know everything about it so everyone's <laughs> Everyone is excited um, and they were even more excited when I figured it out. Right. Like mm-hmm. and I tell the story of my grandmother. I mean, my life from a white evangelical perspective, um, my life could not have been more uh, backslidden. I don't know another way to say that. Or uh, it looked like I failed at life. By the mm. time um, I'm having this conversation with my grandmother and I realized I'm home, uh, my life had pretty much mm. fallen apart. Uh, but I, you know, holding her hand and watching, um, you know, the swearing in and all of that and thinking, I'm home. Like, I'm home. And and so those are the types of moments that, like, I think in the book were called, gave me pause and really... Um, yeah, when I talk about my family, I just get a little <laughs> like choked up about it because they they stayed with me, right? And um, if ever there was a demonstration of unconditional love, I sure as hell didn't get it from white Jesus, but I got mm-hmm. it from my black family, uh, the people that white Jesus told me weren't spiritual enough. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's um, I, um, I just point out that you also made it clear that um, your family went to church a lot longer in the day oh, than than the uh, white church did. <laughs> so that's kind of funny. Actually. Seriously, I would get out of my new church, be able to go to Denny's, have a full blown meal, go home, <laughs> yes, watch a couple shows, yes, for my parents. yes, is it yeah, because it's it's yes. very like it starts on time and ends on time. Yes, yes. And we will cut if we have to cut, but we're going to end on time. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it never got cut is the word, right? Like that worship of the written word, like nothing, oh, sermons never get cut. It's always the tactile sort of like transcendent moments in the service that get cut, which is mm-hmm. again, part of the Lebanon. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I wanted when, when, when you were talking in the book about, your experience of your friend wanting to fix you by bringing you to the real church. Right. Um, I, I just want to share, I had a, I had a similar experience when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And I think for me thinking about the, 
the differences in the implications between those two experiments really helped me to wrap my mind a little bit around the difference between deconstructing and decolonizing. Mm. So I was a Southern Baptist kid. Uh, I was a youth group kid. I brought my Bible to school, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, argued with my science teacher about evolution. Like, I mean, I, 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 I did it right, folks. Um, <laughs> and uh, at a see you at the poll, yes. I think it was, mm. a buddy of mine. See you at the poll is white, what? Oh, man. See, the poll was this big thing we did once a year. I don't know who planned it or how we all even ended up knowing it was the particular date, but you would show up early. All the Christians in your school would show up early and stand in a circle around the flagpole and pray. Yes. I didn't. Uh, that got cut. And so, oh, okay. But so you know. Um, <laughs> so this is, this is uh, we don't have time for the whole story, but this was also the first time I experienced someone praying in tongues because I ended up in a circle with a bunch of Pentecostals. And I was standing like a good little Baptist waiting for the hand squeeze for my turn to pray. And they all just went in with their like clicking and pops and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, and you know, I'm, again, I'm not going to open my eyes and look up, right? Because I know how to pray. Uh, and so I'm like, what's happening? Oh, I bet this is tough. And so I, I was more, I guess, of like a cultural anthropologist. I was like, what an interesting experience. I, I like, I wasn't freaked out like some people get and all that, whatever. <laughs> so afterwards, I was talking to a buddy of mine that was in the circle, and I was like, oh, that's the first time I've ever heard tongues. It was really neat. And he looks at me and he's like, oh, so I thought you were saved already. <laughs> you know, oh. and. Right. You know, you again, the Holy in his Spirit, tradition, are you saved? that's right. That's right. right. That, in his tradition, that yeah. was what it meant. Right? right. So I had a similar kind of a thing where he was like, well, you need to go to the right church and get, you know, get saved for real and blah, blah, all this stuff. Um, I didn't. I, I mean, I was I, I did go to a couple of Pentecostal churches with a girl that my friend thought was cute because, you know, I was trying to be a good wing <laughs> man. Um, but uh, I was never asked. <laughs> there you go. Right. Um, I was never asked to turn my back on my culture. I was never asked to deny my family. I was never really even asked to make any kind of significant alterations to who I was. Um, again, for me, the, the Jesus I was being invited to be like already looked a lot like me. Mm-hmm. Um, I just kind of needed to go to a different church full of white people, right? So like as I was thinking about like everything that you were implicitly being told to give up as inadequate or maybe even sinful – um, it was so much more was at stake for you than mm-hmm. ever would have been for me in that, you know? And so, I don't know. So I was, I was just thinking about that when yeah. I think about like wh- how much more I think you had to wade through and work through than I mm-hmm. do as a white man, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, I we can have a whole different conversation about white people decolonizing, but I just, I don't know. I wanted to like share that for people who might be going like, well, I don't see like, you know, uh, uh, again, having had a similar experience to you, you had so much more at stake than I did. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I think that that's a really important thing to like point out because I think people really don't grasp the weight of it. It's like, if you understand whiteness, that whiteness is itself is predicated on anti-blackness, right? Like it does not exist unless blackness is not a thing. And so when Jesus is white and I'm a black woman, that that creates all kinds of like confusion, self-hatred, depression. Um, and it was so interesting to me because, you know, in white Christianity, it, so much of it was so embedded so we'd listen to, you know, Taylor Swift or Kenny Chesney, and it was nothing. If I put Beyonce on, now we're talking about Illuminati. Yes, and yes. 
the worldliness. Um, and so those are the types of things like, you know, we could do line dances, but we couldn't do like, you know, I don't even know if the cha-cha slide was out back then. That's just an example. It's like other line certain- dances. Why people do black dances when they are played out? So they yes. finally kind of decide we're going to do the cha-cha. That's because that's because that's but when we know it's safe. Once it's played out, we're like, <laughs> OK, it should be all right. You're about to find a good tutor on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I wasn't sure what I should do when they said slide to the left. And <laughs> yeah, that was good. Well played. <laughs> oh, Lord. Just, it's just my yeah, life experience to me. <laughs> yeah, uh, connecting with you more, Matt. You're hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so speaking of white Jesus, speaking of a Jesus who um, I think has the privilege of ignoring complexity and uh, reducing things to binaries, there was a lot of talk over Super Bowl weekend about a uh, ad campaign uh, that was, turns out, funded by a bunch of white evangelicals. Um, uh-huh. the, you know, the, he gets us campaign. Um, I don't know. Do, is there, we don't have to talk about them. Uh, I know there've been so many takes hot and cold, but, uh, in light of this conversation about white Jesus, is there, I mean, is there anything that you thought was yeah. noteworthy or worth commenting on about that whole, whatever it was? Oh yeah. That's a tricky, that's a pretty tricky, sticky commercial they did because they're real slick about it. That's how I know why evangelicals did it because they're not, (laughs) they're not being upfront. (laughs) Like when people are like, "Hmm, let's do some research on who did this. I'm like, right. Right. The vagueness. It's the vagueness for me Uh, because that's how it works. Right. Like uh, my friend, Judy, she was just talking about like, it's like going to somebody's house who says they love you and want to be your friend and they totally get you and we're, we're together. And then you find out they're like torturing people in the basement, <laughs> right? Like it's a, it's a gimmick. A horror film. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the gimmick is usually a telltale sign uh, for me now. Uh, so I go to the website and I'm looking at kind of like, okay, they have a resources tab, Right. And the resources tab tells you kind of like who's funding it and what they what who is the us that Jesus mm-hmm. gets. And when mm-hmm. you look at who's funding it, when you look at who is contributing to, you know, they're hoping that this starts a discipleship process. Right. Like the site is beautifully done um, and works if you just leave it alone. But I think when you when you go back and you peel back a little bit, it's kind of like I'm fine with it as long as you tell me who is the us. Um, what should the us expect? And how should the us know that Jesus gets us? (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think one of the ways that you could have shown folks that Jesus got them would be to like take the $20 million and like build homes for the homeless or like buy food and say, you know, put a little bumper sticker in there that says he gets us. Right. But to do the, the, um, football thing like it's kind of like we're gonna throw out this vague message hope they follow us and get embedded in our churches that are accepting of everyone (laughs) and it's like Mm -hmm. well really like you really shouldn't do that to people (laughs) like just be up front um and and so similar to your friend sandy when you're a kid why don't you come to this play it'll be so fun it's just a little play yeah Yeah, of course we'll go to shoney's it's gonna be a whole it's gonna be a whole thing (laughs) 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 i mean the gimmick usually for me the gimmick part is the white jesus part yeah interesting because he don't have nothing else to offer right like there's Mm -hmm. no substance there 
So huh. if if your theology is actually terrible, you need the the light show to yes. make people forget about it, right? Yes. It's like when people say broccoli is good as long as you douse it in cheese. cheese. <laughs> it's like, yeah, if it was good, you wouldn't need the cheese. Or garlic salt. Except broccoli's not trying garlic to take salt. you over, JR. <laughs> mm, have you met broccoli evangelists? They will not take no for an answer. You know, I'm going to come to your house and show you some broccoli, some real broccoli. See? Exa- there it is. Yep. Oh, this but is by uh, far no, the funniest podcast <laughs> Broccoli <laughs> casserole. Broccoli casserole. I know. Right? I know. Crackers, butter, and it's not Crunch. even real cheese. It's Velveeta. Oh, man. Mm, Sounds like a good way to ruin breadcrumbs and Velveeta to me. <laughs> oh, no. It's really good. It's See? Really, this is what I'm talking about. It together. Uh, we're going to have a broccoli <laughs> think- festival. Mace, is there anything that is worth holding on to from all of that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, during one of my stints in Charismania, like I I really did um, go very, very deep in scripture. I read scripture a lot. And um, I'm thankful for that because it's like I'm, you know, I think that what's happening is I'm just reading scripture on a different level. Now that I know that that's a thing, it's like, Oh, that makes sense. (laughs) Uh, Because some of the same passages that I used to say, this is what this passage means, means something completely different. And it's just Mm -hmm. as beautiful to me now as it was Mm -hmm. then, but it's beautiful for different reasons. And I think that's the part I'm taking with me. I still believe that like scripture is alive. I still believe that. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Tamise, thank you so much for being on with us today. It's been yeah. an absolute pleasure and a privilege. Yeah. Uh, will you let our listeners know where they can follow your work online? Because sure. you uh, you do the internet thing pretty well, I think. So, uh, yeah, where do you want folks well, to? Well, they are. <laughs> to my page and they're going to be real disappointed. <laughs> um, yeah, so I got Tamise Namay Speaks on Instagram. Tamise Namay. So Namay is spelled N-A-M-A-E um, on Twitter. And then Tamisa Namay speaks on Facebook. And what else? Well, I just started a TikTok, but don't expect much. And <laughs> I think that's it. I have a Substack. But okay. the way you could really, really be down is by going to subcultureinc.org and help keep black college students in school. That's what. Tell re- us a little bit more about subculture. Yeah. yeah. So subculture, I started it uh, when I left the ministry. I just kind of. It's essentially the same with the he gets us, right? Like we were telling these students that Jesus cared about them. We had money to take them to like these really amazing retreat centers in Confederate states. <laughs> um, but when they couldn't pay for their housing, um, and when they couldn't pay for their groceries, there was nothing there for them. And so subculture basically is trying to remove those barriers um, and, and make sure that black college students make it to and through school uh, so they can kind of create wealth for themselves. Love that. Awesome. Well, folks, our guest today has been Tamise Spencer Helms. Her new book is Faith Unleavened. It is available, I'm pretty sure, basically anywhere you can find books. And you should be like her family and go buy it and support and enjoy. Uh, So, Tamise, thank you again. Uh, We will be back uh, next week with some more. But until then, please, listeners, make sure you check out uh, what Tamise is doing online. Let her know that you enjoyed having her on the show. Tamise, one more time. Thanks so much. Yes, no problem. Thanks for having me, y'all. Have a good one. Thank you. Well, before we go, we got to talk about what's fascinating us this week. I'll go first. 
I played a board game at Board Game Geek Con last year that I finally picked up a copy of. It is called Ten Penny Parks, and you get to run your own. Th- you actually get to build your own theme park. So it's it's a worker placement game, which means you you know you each take turn placing people that let you do certain things, and you're basically trying to uh, clear out space, like you have to cut down trees and stuff like that. And then build uh, theme park attractions. And there's a few different ways that you gain points. Uh, so it's actually, it is a fun game that is complex without being complicated. And uh, there are multiple paths to victory. It's a it's a game that rewards like that sort of visual creativity and, and spatial uh, abilities, which I'm not very good at, but I still enjoy the game. So uh, it is a really terrific new game that I think uh, I think a lot of you would enjoy. So Ten Penny Parks uh, board game, you should check it out. Hmm. Nice, uh, Kathy. What are you into these days? I am almost three years late to the sourdough party. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> well, welcome. Yeah. It's nice to have you're you. Feeding, yeah. You're feeding a baby in the uh, in the fridge. I am. Huh? I am. No, she's not in the fridge. She well, she is in the fridge right now because I need to stop baking. I have like three loaves of bread, um, two in the freezer, so I don't need that much bread. But um, so an author friend, Anna Broadway, um, she and I met on the interwebs and she um, did a year of travel and had been um, feeding this sourdough starter with her travels around the world. She dried the starter and I think she mailed starter, dried starter out to a number of people that she knew. I happened to be one of those fortunate lucky ones. And then I didn't do anything with it. (sighs) And we had the global pandemic and we had lockdown and people were doing all sorts of interesting things. I was like, I don't know. I was doing other things. Um, And I didn't think to start baking And then recently I was like, I have this sourdough starter. It's kind of old. I wonder if I can wake it up. And she's awake. She's alive. She's alive. So now I'm on this whole like, okay, how do I get my bread to look better? Because it tastes pretty good. But now like the last two loaves I baked are so pale. They look raw, but they're not. They're actually baked and they're so thin. They haven't, but they also like did a full ride. I don't know. So now I'm into sourdough, but really it's a great way to procrastinate as Matt knows, because he is my (laughs) co-author and you're supposed to be doing the glossary for the book. And I went on and I was like, he did it all. He did it all. Kathy literally sent me a note like, oh, I'm, I'm working on the glossary. Uh, and I went to our Google Doc and I was like, I don't see you in it. Where are you? And she's like, well, I'm actually making bread. Like, okay. <laughs> uh, Kathy, if you need any pointers, uh, you can talk to one Amanda Forresteros. Oh. Who, um, who has been doing, she is a terrific sourdough baker. Our starter is named Barbara. She's three generations old. So, yeah. Okay. All right, I'll give Amanda a call. Yeah, plus she'd love to hear from you anyway. Yes, so. that would be very fun. All right, Matt. Uh, I This wasn't actually even this week. I think this was maybe two weeks ago, but I cannot stop ta- thinking about this movie, Fright Night, the 2011 version. So it's actually a remake. It is about a little town in Las Vegas that this kid becomes convinced 
that his neighbor just might possibly be a vampire. His neighbor, Jerry. His neighbor, Jerry, which is the stupidest (laughs) name for a vampire. Um, Vampires can have regular names. They do not have to be fancy. It's really funny, like shockingly funny while also still being a thrilling kind of horror. I guess it's horror, but it feels more like a thriller to me. Like it's it's you're scared, but you're like, oh, no, you're going to get caught kind of stuff. So Colin Farrell is in it. David Tennant. Um, Lisa Loeb. <laughs> oh, <laughs> really interesting. It's it's really really funny and enjoyable. I I sent a note to Zoe, my oldest, and said you got to watch this. And she uh, she sent me texts while she was watching, like kind of live tweeting it just to me. And I was having fun all over again. Um, yeah. So that's Fright Night 2011. Well worth your, if you have any stomach for vampire or horror adjacent movies it's an accessible one it's not one that's like super super gory or gonna make you feel weird or make you afraid to go to bed at night oh cool jared's thinking about it make you feel weird make you feel weird i mean it might have some moments make you feel here's the thing the whole the whole this is like this is like a classic vampire movie in that He's a vampire and he just wants to drink your blood. Like there's he's not tortured, he's not sad. No, he's he evil. Sparkle. Like he's just evil. And so a good bit of the comedy comes from when you have someone who is immortal and evil, you can hurt them very badly on a screen without <laughs> losing viewers. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and so they come up with some just like really clever ways as as the the good guys are trying to escape from him, you know. So, uh, yeah, it's I think it's hysterical. I, I co-signed this. Yeah. Yeah, it's really great. It's a lot of fun. Uh, um, well, JR, it sounds like you the, oh, have yeah. a little something that came out this last week. Tell us about it. Yeah, I mentioned it in last week's episode, but my article that I co-wrote with Brandon Grafius about M. Night Shyamalan's new movie, Knock at the Cabin, is up at Tor.com. And we actually talk about how the original book and the film uh, really embody entirely different ethical systems because of the way each of them ends the story that they oh, tell. Oh, interesting. Uh, and we actually interviewed Paul Tremblay, who wrote the book, uh, about some of some of that. So we ended up talking about like sacrifice in the Hebrew Bible and New Testament, uh, and and then also, of course, that big question of would you would you kill me if uh, if it meant that it would save the whole world? No, Matt, you would not. You'd I let don't the world think I would kill anybody for be that. destroyed. I don't think I'd kill a stranger for that. Kathy, Kathy, what about you? Would you kill me if it meant saving the whole world? Um, is it guaranteed? As far as you know, sure, yeah. Yeah, see, as far as I know, that's the kicker. I don't know a lot of things for sure, so. <laughs> Kathy, just be sitting there with a knife. Let's see what happens. <laughs> in that in that scenario, how would you be sure then? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Also, I feel like can, a knife is a really ineffective way to try to kill someone. Oh, you could shoot me. <laughs> you could shoot me. It'd be fine. Yeah. Um, well, and then also, uh, because Ant, as we're recording, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania is going to be coming out this coming weekend. By the time you hear this episode, it'll already be out. And so I should have an, a tour or a, an article with Sojourners up on that film. Uh, probably, uh, if it's not up now, it should be up soon. So watch for that also. All right. We're going to go yeah, see it so, Thursday night. Same. Yep. Matt, what about you? When are you seeing Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania? You know, I'll get there. 
When when's uh, I think Tuesday is cheap day. I might go then. Okay. Nice. It's possible. Excellent. I'm a, right, I'm a little nervous. Well, Pat- it looks like uh, it looks like a pretty big departure from the Ant Man movies, which is fine. I'll still go to it, but I'm a little nervous about it. But you liked their old stuff better. I like the like goofy little <laughs> Ant Man where he's like, "This is the bad guy. He has a gun." You know, it's fine. Change is um, good. Well, we'll find out. We'll what? we'll uh, hit, listen next week to hear a little bit of our updates. I'm sure at least one of us will be fascinated by it. <laughs> um, speaking of which, next week's show we're interviewing Karen Gonzalez about what it looks like when we center immigrants in our work for just immigration. So I'm very excited about that interview as well. Uh, and Matt and Kathy are still working away on their book, so uh, you should be anxiously salivating for the chance that you get to read it. Do we have a, a, an official release date yet? October something, right? I don't know if it's official. That's what we've been working off of. We've got a cover. We've got. Yeah. It's in, it's in the near future. <laughs> when I told Amanda I was going to get your book cover as a tattoo, she didn't seem to believe me. What? Why well, would she doubt that, that you would get Peter. anything as a tattoo? Yeah, I mentioned is Peter that. Is going to get a matching tattoo? No, P- Peter is not getting a tattoo. But I mentioned that about the cover. And he was like, oh, that's what you're talking about. Because I think that it was on a thread or something about tattoos. And he was oh. like, what? You and JR are going to get matching tattoos? What? You're going to get a tattoo? I would Kathy? love to get another tattoo. I have an idea for a separate tattoo, but this one also would make sense with that. Anyway. Um, my tattoo guy lives in the central Missouri, which is sort of halfway for us. Oh, so I would happily arrange it if we want to do a tattoo weekend. Oh, that would be fun. Come on, Matt. Okay. I have to meet you. Yeah, that's right. I have a tattoo that says this is not a tattoo. It's just like an art school joke, you know? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, you should get the tattoo verse from Leviticus tattooed on you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's the next one. <laughs> Sorry, Kathy, I cut off your outro. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, all right, listeners, it's been fun. Join us next week. Kathy's like, I'm tired of talking to these guys. You must be tired of listening to them. Bye. Bye.